0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Amanda Ellison on splitting. First, I wanted to let you know about our website at booksonpod.com. If you go there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the food and beverage, health and fitness, or science and medicine category for episode number 134 with George Zidane on ingredients. This is George Zidane. I'm the author of Ingredients, the Strange Chemistry of What We Put in Us and On Us. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Amanda Ellison is a psychologist and neuroscientist at Durham University. Her book, Splitting, The Inside Story of Headaches, is now out in paperback. Amanda, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Trey. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So what was your goal with Splitting?
1: Well, my goal with splitting was to talk to people about something that's incredibly fascinating, which is headache. And actually beyond that, there's something that's even more fascinating, which is what's happening inside of your head, what's happening inside of your brain, what's happening with your behavior, what's happening with your biology. How do all those things interlink with each other and, and how are they all wrapped up in your environment? And headaches are a really good microcosm by which to explain that. And one of the goals that I had was to just, if you'll forgive the, the expression, to knock it on the head that all headaches are migraine because, you know, everybody thinks they've got a really bad headache. And so it's migraine. It's a little bit like we used to say pre-COVID, you know, if you had a cold, it wasn't a cold, it was the flu, you know, <laughs> but not all colds are the flu, whereas not all headaches are migraine. So it's about teasing those apart and saying it's really important to understand what kind of headache you're experiencing so that you can treat it properly.
0: We will certainly get into the specific types of headaches, but mechanically speaking, is there a common quality with most, if not all, headaches?
1: Mm-hmm. Certainly is. The main thing that causes pain in headaches is a widening of the blood vessels in the head. And that sets off danger signals because we really don't want widening of blood vessels in the head beyond the comfortable limits of those, those blood vessels because we keep blood separate to the brain. We, we keep it separate via the blood brain barrier. And that's really, really important because blood is very toxic to brain tissue. So if it meets brain tissue, it, it kills that brain tissue on contact. That's what we all recognize as stroke or a hemorrhage, a hemorrhage in the brain. It's one of the forms of stroke. So we have a very early warning system for that. And that is known as pain in your head so you get the widening of blood vessels sets off these little receptors that live in the blood vessels and that sense that those signals are sent off the brain and we interpret it as pain and basically that pain is there for a reason it's there to tell us to stop stop what you're doing it's dangerous if you pull a muscle in your leg then you're not going to go out and play football, are you? Because you might cause your leg more damage. And it's exactly the same with pain anywhere else in your body. Your head is no different. It's to protect your brain. Your brain is the most important organ of your body. So our early warning system is very early. It's very, very early. So I'm not saying that any headache that you get is a sign of an impending hemorrhage or stroke. It's just that the the warning system is very, very early. Just to tell you, you know what? I'm not quite happy. There's something going on in here. Just, just take it easy, okay? Let me, let me just reset everything. And that's what that pain is telling us.
0: This book is not only informationally dense, but it's also very witty as well. Kudos on the sense of humor that you infuse throughout these pages. And speaking of, laughing a lot can cause your head can, to hurt, as can thinking too much, thinking so much that your head hurts. What's going on here when your head hurts as a result of something that you are intentionally trying to do?
1: Yeah, well, part of it has to do with the fact that you if you're if you're concentrating for a very long period of time, you get extra blood flow to thinking parts of your brain, particularly in the front of of your brain, your frontal lobe and areas like that. Um, And of course, if you get a a sustained amount of blood flow coming to an area of the brain, then those blood vessels are widening. So again, we're back to that whole early warning system. But you also have other things when you're concentrating for a long period of time. You get eye strain, for example. You get postural changes. You know, lots of us just sit in front of our computers all day on Zooms. And, and we're just writing documents or oh, it goes on and on and on. And we're all sitting in the same position. Sometimes we're cold, sometimes we're too hot. Our body just isn't comfortable. And that all is it's like stress response, really. Um, for It's a physical stress response. But our brain can't actually tell the difference between a physical stress response and emotional stress response. So we actually feel emotionally stressed when our body is stressed. So if you're sitting in the same position all day and you're just you're just working or whatever it is you're doing, then you're getting a lot of a physical stress response. But actually then you begin to feel tense. You know you feel a bit tetchy You feel a little bit like oh I hate my job. What am I doing here? You know it's all very emotionally intense. And that's because your brain is mixing up those signals. It's 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 interpreting your physical stress as being an emotional stress because it's exactly the same as far as your brain is concerned. So we react in, in, in exactly the same way. So you get, you get um, again, you get you get rebound, vasodilation, all sorts of things that your body tries to do. You get inflammation, you get a big immune response, all the things that your body tries to do to fix itself. And actually, sometimes that can make things worse. So it turns into a big vicious circle, really. Most but of us our... should help. Oh, go ahead. Laughing should help. The reason why laughing would help is because you get a little shot of of, um, serotonin, Hmm. which is a really, really important hormone neurotransmitter in your brain. Helps you pass signals from one neuron to the next. And it's um, it's a very powerful painkiller. And it's very important in mood regulation. So when you're happy, when you when you laugh at something and when, when you've had a really long day, you decide to put on a comedy, you decide to put some cat videos on YouTube where cats are falling off buildings and it's all very hilarious. <laughs> just until you see the splattered cat, really, <laughs> that's not hilarious. But you might you might have a little chuckle um, and, and that then you get a nice squirt of serotonin and that's a natural painkiller. So it blocks the pain signal from your body getting to your brain.
0: Many of us love those random YouTube videos and many of us have also experienced that delicious bite of ice cream that has turned into brain freeze. What did Mm. McMaster University associate professor learn when studying brain freeze that is obviously a common affliction of consuming things like ice cream or Slurpees or Icy's too fast?
1: Yeah, now Slurpees are my downfall, I have to say. And the (laughs) reason why is because when it's even worse when you direct the cold stimulus right up onto your palate mm. and that's the key it's it's actually a referred pain from your palate the roof of your mouth it has nothing to do with your dental sensitivity which is what it used to be thought of as as being the root cause of this but actually it's from it's from your palate now it's referred pain you don't feel it in the roof of your mouth you feel it in your temple it's really funny to induce this in children because like they have no idea where this is coming from it's hilarious and um, so you you just get children with their hands smacked up to their their temples and their foreheads and it's referred because all of the nerve cells that cover the roof of your mouth and, and your buccal cavity in general, which is your mouth. It's like, shut your buccal cavity. It's the best, best <laughs> curse phrase there is. Um, it, it's all lumped together with all the other input coming from the rest of your face. And your brain can't tell the difference between the input coming from your forehead and coming from your mouth. So it actually feels it from your forehead. It's pretty much the same as when, when your heart is working without oxygen and it produces pain signals. You don't feel a heart attack as a as a pain in your in your heart you actually feel it as a pain in your left arm and that's because all those nerve cells are all bunched together and your brain doesn't distinguish between what's happening in your chest area and your, your arm area so you feel it there it's called referred pain so you get that and the other thing that happens is is that your brain doesn't like to be cold it really does not like to be cold it has an optimal working temperature and um it's it's, i always say this my brain doesn't work well in the cold and neither does my iphone so (laughs) does that make my brain an iphone there's a little bit of syllogistic logic there for you no but (laughs) but here's the thing you're not dead until you're warm sober and dead because alcohol and cold have pretty much similar effects on your brain it really slows everything down and and exactly the same thing happens um if if your brain is cold now Because of that, you you have, again, you have an early warning um, system because your brain is the most important organ of your body. And so... Um, You get a big rush of blood to the area to bring this nice warm blood to your to your brain to warm it up, and of course here we go again. You've got your widening blood vessels, your vasodilation. Your brain goes, oh no, oh no, hold on, pain, pain, pain. This is bad. We don't want a widening of blood vessels. I need to tell you that this is happening, and so you get this throbbing happening in your forehead as well. So it's it's a double whammy really. It has to do with the activation of pain receptors in your mouth in your in your palate particularly but it also has to do with this rush of blood to warm up your brain because because your brain thinks that it's it's all of a sudden gone very very cold
0: allergy issues are a huge problem here in austin texas Mm -hmm. where i live Is this a matter of sinuses filling up with mucus, creating this pressure that feels like that vice grip that many of us go through when we're suffering through allergies? That pressure is what's causing the headache or is there something else at play here?
1: It's awful, isn't it? It's, um, It's really hard to get over as well, isn't it? And it really does feel like you've been hit in the face with the spade and so sometimes it's very transient and 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 it goes away very quickly but sometimes it lingers and it it has to do with your own peculiar uh, response to the allergen so what happens well what happens is you have a lovely i mean it's a wonderful system it's absolutely gorgeous but not really when you get in there um you what, what you've got this this layer of skin it's called epithelium and it produces these um, this mucus and it 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 it's like a travelator, you know. It it takes all 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 like dust particles and everything, and it just makes sure that it keeps everything clear. Okay, the, your sinuses are air filled cavities in your face, right? Your bones they live in your bones, and the re- why do they live in your bones? Well, your bones are like corrugated cardboard. They're very very strong, but they are they need to be quite light really, because your head's very heavy. You know, your your brain is nearly two kgs worth right there. You know, your, your head's really heavy. We can't be doing looking around really, really heavy facial bones. So actually they're kept quite light because you have the, these air filled cavities inside and you've got four of them. So that's four things that actually can get blocked up. Now, if you're really unlucky, they can all get blocked up, but actually generally it's just one or other, or maybe two out of the four might get blocked up but they'll affect you differently depending on which gets blocked up. So if, you know, if, if you're, if you get, if you typically get pain across your cheekbones, then that's one of them. If you get pain in your forehead, that's one of them. Pain between your eyes, that's another one. Just a generalized headache, that's another one. That's the, the deepest one there. And mostly it doesn't really matter because decongestants will work for that as, as a worst case scenario. Menthol works as well. So menthol might be something like that you inhale. So it's it's like you put it into water and and you inhale it and it opens up. You think it's opening up your sinuses and it's dissolving all the mucus plugs and everything that's there. And because they're all plugged up, because that's what happens in response to an allergen. And you you get more mucus to try to get rid of it and then you get an overreaction. And that's what turns into an allergy and with an allergy then you get the the um the inflammatory cells the things that bring all the, the immune responses they actually move so that they're stuck nicely on that epithelial layer oh, and they're not where they're supposed to be but that makes you extra sensitive which is why you have an allergy and your next door neighbor doesn't for example so it's it's a real mess but it's there to protect you. It just becomes counterproductive. But anyway, back to menthol. So you can also have a menthol stick that you stick up your nose and you give it a good, you know. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing about menthol is um, menthol should never be confused with your lip balm, which comes in a very, very similar packaging. But if you shove your lip balm up your nose, which I have done on the bus on occasion, you don't get any menthol-like effect because it's not menthol, it's lip balm. And people just look mm. at you funny. But when you <laughs> stick a menthol stick up your nose, you do feel like the whole thing is released and that, you know, you you, you can breathe again. And, and not being able to breathe is very stressful. So, you know, when you're not able to breathe, you get a big stress response as well. But actually what menthol is doing is it's turning on the cool receptors in your nasal area. Mm. And your brain goes, oh, Oh, hang on a minute! I haven't got as much inflammation going on there anymore. Oh, okay then. I'll take I'll take all that 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 immune response away because I don't need it anymore. And and just by taking its foot off that pedal of inflammation, just a tiny tiny bit, it makes a little bit more room in your sinuses. Your your blood vessels constrict a little bit, and you feel like you can breathe again. And then that feeds back to your brain. It's like, oh, everything's everything's great. I can breathe again. Everything's fine. It's an illusion. Menthol is setting up an illusion in your brain that everything's fine and it's not. Menthol actually isn't doing anything to your airflow, really. It's just fooling your brain into thinking that it has. But even though you know that, it still works.
0: That's interesting. Is that same mechanism at play when you're stopped up and you eat something really spicy and you feel like you can breathe Mm -hmm. again for a few minutes afterwards?
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of that, but actually there's... there's Slightly more direct effect, and that things like capsaicin and, and all those hot foods can actually give you a runny nose. So you get that sense of of like instead of being bunged mm. up, and allergies can do both, right? They can they can make you bunged up, or they can give you a runny nose. It just depends on on what your brainstem thinks about the whole thing, really. But but yes, what that will do is it will give you a runny nose. So if you are bunged up and you get a runny nose, you instantly feel like things are being released and then that feeds back to your brain and your brain gets a little bit less stressed about the whole thing and the inflammation decreases and it's brilliant and what's fantastic about spicy food is that you do get a hit of dopamine from that which is your reward hormone your reward chemical so actually you get a little bit A little bit happy after that, really, as well. So it gives you an extra pep in your
0: step. (laughs) That's right. At the root of what we've just been discussing is mucus or snot. Mm -hmm. Snot is an incredible Mm -hmm. word. Not only is it a mild cuss when we're little kids, but it's just a fun word to say as adults. You actually looked into the history of the word snot. Where did that word come from? And what is your (laughs) Snot 22 questionnaire? (laughs)
1: Well, the Snot 22 questionnaire is the Sinonasal Outcomes Test. And it came um, out of Missouri and it was developed by Jay Piccirillo. It's got 22 questions on it. And it is a questionnaire that's designed to diagnose you as whether or not you are experiencing a sinus headache or sinus episode or not. So it's got lots and lots of questions on it about how it is you're physically feeling, but also how that makes you feel Phenomenologically or emotionally, and also how it is that it affects your life. And so, if you score high enough on that, that's a good diagnosis that actually you are experiencing a sinus episode. Because oftentimes, sinus becomes a little bit um, conflated with migraine, for example. And other kinds of headaches. And so really, it's really important that um, we diagnose headaches in the correct way as the correct headache, because the treatment will be different. So you would never think of, of necessarily treating a, a real migraine headache with decongestants but that really works for sinus headaches. so that's why diagnosis is so, so important snot is a great word you are absolutely right and yes i was banned from using it as a kid as well <laughs> um it's <laughs> and and you know it's it's really funny because because certainly the, the way I was brought up, you weren't allowed to use the proper terms for anything. And it was always thought that that snot was like this kind of colloquial term, but it actually is the proper term. It's, it comes from Middle England, it has been around since the, the late 14th century, and it is just nasal discharge um, or mucus. And it, it, it led on to lots and lots of other words like German and Dutch variants like snutten snotty and snoot and they all come from the base word sn- snout I th- I th- you know it's a funny thing really because I just I thought to myself you know what we all use this word snot where did that come from you know it's like it's like we all called the toilet the crapper but we know that actually that came from Thomas crapper who made one of the first flushable toilets <laughs> so you know words come from places and I was just really interested to 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 find out where that came from and it turns out it has a perfectly reasonable start in life and i think we should use it more often
0: yeah a lot of people might be surprised by the idea by the notion that the word crapper may have come before the word crap because there was a guy named crapper yeah. that's a uh, hilarious there was
1: a guy named crapper thomas crapper yeah
0: glad you pointed so that one out shout
1: out to all you thomases out there
0: so, in your uh, research, not just for this book, but for what you do for a living, you actually asked seven-year-olds about their experiences with headaches. What were your takeaways from that conversation?
1: Yeah. So, so my takeaway from that conversation, the main thing that actually really struck me was that even at seven years old, seven-year-olds can can think about their experience of headache and think about external factors that may have affected them. And how it is that they're feeling. That seems remarkable to me. I don't think I was able to do that as a seven year old, that that they can say, oh, well, you know, if things are really shouty around me or if, if there's a lot of noise, sometimes I get a headache. And I'm not sure at seven I would have thought about external stimuli causing something physical inside my body. But then I probably wasn't a scientist then. I didn't think about these things. So I, I wasn't a desperately curious child, which is quite remarkable because now I think I'm making up for it.
0: <laughs> that is great. So stress obviously causes headaches. Many of us have dealt mm-hmm. with the headache that is as a result of stress. Do you have some maybe common tips that could help a person out to become more resilient in the face of stress to avoid more of those anxiety inducing headaches? Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I I um, got on my soapbox and, and put a few tips of my own, really, from my own experience into um, the, the Ellison Guide to Resil- Resilience, I might have called it, or Resilience 101, perhaps. Really, it's about um, monitoring your response to stressors around you, because, you know, we really shouldn't worry about things that we can't control, because what's the point in that? Things are going to happen anyway um where that all falls down i think is when we worry about loved one's health we can't control that we can't control their behavior but we still worry um when when um we worry about um You know, other other things like bigger world things like climate change, for example, getting a lot of climate change anxiety. And that's really interesting because we're seeing that happen a lot in in adolescents and teenagers who find it hard to contextualize their worries. And the reason why that is, is because their frontal lobes aren't developed yet. You know, they really they can do so many things at the age of 18, but they're not fully grown yet. So this, this frontal part of, of their heads, their frontal lobe, it's the part of the brain that is doing decision making, the part of the brain that's doing um planning, consequence, thinking about consequences of actions. And and that's not fully developed until you're like you're twenty-three. But but you've got these eighteen to twenty three year olds running around. They can do all sorts of things that that other grown ups can do, and and so they they tend to find it harder to contextualise their worries. So it's about knowing that actually this too shall pass, but taking your own power back and saying right, what can I do about this situation that's really really worrying me? What can I do as an individual and trying to take it step by step? And, you know, knowing that regrets are futile, you do what you do at the time with the best information that you have and trying to say, well, look, you know, let's just take the lesson and move on. Those kinds of things.
0: Now, I'd heard this term before reading your book, but I was pretty unfamiliar with what exactly they were. So for people who are in my category, what are cluster headaches?
1: Okay, so cluster headaches are the those suffer from migraine and have never experienced cluster headache will think that theirs is the worst in the Mm -hmm. world, but actually cluster headache is the worst. And, you know, this has been tested objectively um, by, by various um, individuals across the globe. Yeah. Cluster headaches, awful. So it's something that, that will attack you and will often come on with the change of the seasons. So, so there's, there's, that's kind of a clue as to what its, it's underlying, um, underlying cause is, but it really is something where it, it can hit you really, really quickly. It feels so painful that, that oftentimes people who experience it will actually bang their own heads off a wall. Because that is preferable to the pain that they are experiencing inside of their heads. It's really, really all pervasive. There is a treatment now, and it's it's a it's a trypton, so it actually plays with the histamine balance and also the serotonin balance in your brain. And if taken quickly enough, that can stave off the, the, the cluster attack. But it happens very, very quickly. Um, And it happens over a period of time. So it can reoccur, right? So it can go away as quickly as it can, but it can reoccur in clusters, hence the headache name. So it is actually recognized now as its own specialized headache. And it is recognized as being the worst headache that you can experience. It absolutely knocks you flat for days, sometimes weeks at a time. It's interesting because another motivation for, for writing this book is that the general practitioners, our doctors that we go to see, our, our non-specialist doctors, our family doctors, they don't tend to know the ins and outs of all the different types of headaches. Hmm. And that in, in, in England, which is where I'm based, and certainly in Ireland where I grew up, it's not it doesn't really hit the curriculum of medical school. So, so in 75% of English medical schools, headache isn't even on the curriculum, right? Pain is just as bad. It's not, not really, it doesn't really hit the curriculum. And from, from the research that I've done, I think the reason for that is, is because actually headache is seen as something that's solvable, right? You take the pill, you move on, you get on with your life, just get on with it, you know, but actually you can do that over and over and over again are you really helping yourself by doing that? You're masking something that your body is trying to tell you, you know, maybe we should get to the bottom of this and stop that from happening. Stop whatever is causing your headache from happening. And then you won't have to take these painkillers or whatever it is that you do for your, for your headaches. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just really, really important to have that understanding of the different types of headaches and and oh bless you. And, you. and the cluster and migraine headaches have always been, coincident with each other people wouldn't know the difference between those two things but they are actually different and their treatment would be different as well
0: so as far as migraines go uh, i've heard of them i thankfully much like with cluster headaches have not suffered from migraines but i know people mm-hmm. who have and even though it technically comes in number two in terms of the least comfortable headaches mm-hmm. you can tell that it still sucks for the individual having to deal with that <gasps> how are mm-hmm. migraines different from your standard run-of-the-mill headache
1: migraines are um, eminently fascinating so what we've talked about up till now are headaches that are mainly vascular okay so you've got this widening of blood vessels and that's where um, you feel the pain right and it can have knock-on effects and and various other things and particularly in cluster headache but migraine's really interesting because something's actually happening in your brain that causes the vascular effects, and it's the vascular effects where the pain comes from, but all of those other symptoms that happen in migraines. So people experience flashing lights, they experience generalized weakness, they experience the inability to put two words together to form a coherent sentence, which is sometimes my life, but you know, <laughs> depends on what I'm teaching. So, so it's, it can really, really be. An, an event, and that's that's what I call it. I call it experiencing an event. It's not something that's happening inside of your head, it's something that's happening in your brain that is causing biobehavioral effects, you know. And the reason why it does that, and the reason why it knocks you flat is because all of your neurochemicals, they're all in the wrong place, right? And all their concentrations are wrong and everything. And so the, the only thing that your body can do is actually just stop. And reset itself, and it's you know it's analogous to how it is that sometimes we lose consciousness if we're in serious amounts of pain. It's our body's survival mechanism. It's our way of protecting ourselves. So migraines pretty much the same. That's what it does. It knocks you flat in your back because you have a huge imbalance of of these neurochemicals, and they're all in the wrong place because of what's happening in your brain, and um, you you just go down with it. So th- there's, there's four different stages in a migraine. And this is generally what people don't realize about migraines, that before you even experience the pain phase, you can have had two phases already, right? So you get the pro phase, which migrainers, people who experience migraine, they're really, really bad at recognizing this, like tremendously bad. It's laughable how bad they are at recognizing when it is. They're actually... Going to get a migraine episode, and the reason why they're bad is because actually these neurotransmitters and these neurochemicals and their hormones are imbalanced. Right? Mm. They're not balanced at all. They're they're not in the right concentrations. And what that makes them then do is carry out various behaviors to try to rebalance them. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about yawning, right? Because that plays around with you. dopamine transmitters, right? Mm. And I'm talking about feeling a little bit more needy than usual. They're a bit more huggy, you know, and that then plays around with your serotonin balance. So they're actually trying to self-medicate, really. You know, you might get a craving for chocolate. Well, chocolate is packed with tryptophan, which is broken down inside of your body into serotonin. So that helps you play with your balance. That's led people to think that The chocolate actually triggers their headaches. It doesn't. You get the craving for chocolate, which you eat, and that is in an attempt to rebalance your hormones. Sometimes it doesn't work. You get the headache anyway. Some people think, oh, I ate chocolate. That gave me a headache. But that's not true. It's Mm -hmm. actually the imbalance that's yanking your behavioral chain and saying, give me serotonin, eat chocolate, have a hug you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's what's fascinating, that what's actually happening in your brain is having real demonstrable effects on your behavior, because you're actually subconsciously trying to self-medicate to rebalance these hormones so that you don't develop the headache, which is phenomenal. You know, I mean, that's just amazing. How many headaches have we headed off by just having a hug or having a laugh? or having chocolate, or yawning our heads off, or whatever it might be that we might have done in that prodrome phase. But, you know, it doesn't always work. And then sometimes, you know, it does develop into into a headache. The next stage that people might have have, um, recognized is the aura phase. That's when you see those flashy lights. Not everybody experiences that, but the same thing is happening in their brain as the people who do actually experience the flashing lights or the, the pins and needles or whatever they might experience as an aura. Um, the, The difference is actually how eloquent their brain is and, and how much that actually comes to their consciousness. But the same thing is happening. It's pretty much like a little bit of a storm that's going on inside of the brain. It's a wave of excitation that, that goes from the back to the front towards the front of the brain. And that wave of excitation all your nerve cells are active. Right. And then it's followed by a wave of depression because all of the ions, all the little charged particles that cause those ele- that electrical activity in your brain, they're all in the wrong place. And your brain can't do anything anymore because, you know, nothing's in the right place. So um, so it actually has a wave of depression uh, in that it just stops working. So you get this wave of excitation that activates everything, and then a wave of depression where nothing is active, right? And then this sets up interactions between those brain areas and other areas that cause the nausea and all of that rubbish that you get when you're you're going through a, a migraine attack. But you also get because one of your your ions is called potassium. We all know that bananas are full of it. It's really important that all of that potassium is generally inside of your neurons, but it all gets trapped on the outside of your neurons. And that's a really bad place to have it because it means you can't have electrical activity anymore. God. And also it it acts directly on the pain receptors on your um, blood vessels. And it causes vasoconstriction right so instead of widening they get really really narrow and that means that you can't flush away all of this stuff that shouldn't be outside of your neurons and and you don't get as much oxygen to to the brain regions as you should have you don't get the nutrients and of course your brain goes oh hang on hang on this isn't right this isn't right overdose on the old vaso dilation so you get rebound phasodilation your blood vessels are wide as wide can be your pain receptors go oh no this is terrible <laughs> throb 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 and that's where the pain phase of the migraine comes from the whole thing is exhausting that can last you know for hours and hours Usually people just take themselves off to bed in a darkened room because they have this huge amount of photophobia and 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 um you know they don't want any noise around them or anything because their brain is so sensitive now. And and then you just get this this kind of exhaustion and fogginess that comes afterwards. Some people experience euphoria in that phase. Hmm. So there are some accountants that I spoke to um about about their experience with headache. I was trying to trying to fractionate out um, eye strain and looking at lots of numbers and deadlines and things from from the actual migraine attack that they might experience. And one particular woman pulled me aside at the end and she said, I don't talk about this with my friends, but after I've had a migraine attack, I feel like I've had an orgasm. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry? And she said, yeah. She said, and actually it's perfectly reasonable because as your, as your, your transmissions are rebalancing, You can you can go too far on serotonin or the the dopamine Ah. and you can feel that euphoria. But but she said she never told her friends because she felt guilty about that, that they didn't experience this at the end of their migraine. But she did. Usually you just have this mental fogginess and you have to pay attention to that. You've got to let your body reset itself. You can't just get on with this.
0: A lot of people don't realize that dopamine not only is partially responsible for our pursuit of pleasure, but also pain as well. So I guess it makes sense that coming back the other direction, that it can mm-hmm. lead to such ecstasy. Now, why does menstruation lead to migraine sometimes?
1: Okay, so menstruation is all about the fluctuating hormones because what happens in um, the menstrual cycle is that you get um, an increase and a decrease of oestrogen and progesterone. So it's 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 up and down and that's just as part of the menstrual cycle all the way to menopause. Um, whereas the male tends to release hormones pretty much just at a level, right? Whereas the female brain releases hormones cyclically. Okay, so it's this up and down. Now we know that oestrogen is not only vasoactive so it has an effect on how how wide our blood vessels are but it's also psychoactive so it plays with actually the dominance of of our hemispheres, so our left and our right hemisphere so we know that it's having an effect on our behavior but we also know in in our brain um and that translates actually to behaviors in real life so it, it does unfortunately mean that um, women find it very, very hard to parallel park, but only for about 20 minutes every month. So there's no point in generalising this, Okay, right? Yes, women are worse at parallel parking, but for 20 minutes every month, that's it, right? So we can't generalise it. So it has real behavioural effects. And and that's a really interesting thing, um, but that's probably in its story. So we know that it's acting... Um, on the activity of our brain, which we know migraine is all about, but we also know that it plays with our, um, our blood vessels as well, which migraine is about as well. So between both of those, we know that people who are in high estrogen phases of their menstrual cycle, they tend to experience migraines with aura, whereas those who experience migraines in low estrogen phases, they tend to experience migraine without aura. Now, that then means that given that we know the same things happening in the brain, no matter what, it means that it may be the oestrogen that's playing with the eloquence of the cortex as to whether or not it actually reaches our our consciousness, which is really, really interesting, but again, yet to be proved. So we know that this fluctuation of oestrogen has an effect. And that is why the correlation of more women suffering from migraine is true. So we, we also know that that um if we were to go by correlation, that you're more likely to suffer from a migraine if you're under five foot three and you're um, a redhead with a luxuriant head of hair. And if you have an inverted nipple, then you're you're triply cursed as well, because then you're more likely to suffer from a migraine. This is back in the day when a lot of science was done by correlation and not causation. Wow. But we know that that observation that more women suffer from migraine than men do, that is actually causative. That is due to this fluctuation in hormones. menstrual cycle. How do we deal with that? Well, we can artificially affect the concentration of oestrogen by taking the contraceptive pill. And that is exogenous hormones where you set the level at an abnormally high level, but at least you don't get that fluctuation. Um, You may have migraine to begin with, with that, um, but it should actually dissipate over time and it should control migraine that way. Not helpful if you're trying to start a family, of course, or have a baby because you need that fluctuation of hormones in order to, to create the, the conditions in order to reproduce. Um, so that's that's not always a good plan. The other plan is to wait for menopause when um, things become less cyclical and the incidence of migraine in women does
0: decrease. Generally speaking, has science gotten a beat on how to treat and hopefully eventually cure migraines?
1: Yeah, it has. It really has. Things have come on a little bit in the past um, 10 to 15 years. And, and this is what's really, really interesting, actually, um, about writing a book like this, right? Because you actually you get to, to put all of the bits of evidence together. Because people generally tend not to do this. And in my world, you know, you're either a biochemist or you're, you know, a molecular neurophysiologist or you're something else, you know. And and, and you, you don't meet people in the other streams. You might all be looking at the same thing, but you don't meet people who are looking at the same thing from different angles. And that's why it's such a joy for somebody like me who's who never got past the Y phase to, to actually be able to put those things together and say, oh, Here's the answer. Here's what we can do. Now, there are some things that we can do chemically. So there's some treatments that have come along um, and and actually have have been um, regulated really, really recently. um, Beyond eating a lot of
0: chocolate. Yeah,
1: beyond beyond eating a lot of chocolate. Um, But there are things that actually play with the serotonin balance. We've talked about Mm. um, tryptans. So so they play with the serotonin balance um, in your brain. But also there's another one that plays with a particular protein called calcitonin gene related protein, which there seems to be a heck of a lot of in the brain of people who suffer from migraine. And so this is a blocker. This drug would block that. And that can be taken as preventative for migraine. So that's an up and coming um, new kid on the block. But actually being able to look at all the other biobehavioral things that we might do to stave off our headaches, to look at the validity of the triggers that people think are out there that start off their headaches and say, you know what, is that a trigger or is that something that we do to try to stave off the headache like we talked about with chocolate? Um, it's about actually regulating our, our control over our own headaches. And, you know, our happiness is part of that as well, because again, you think about happiness, you think about serotonin, you think about that as being a natural painkiller, but also as being very important in hormonal balance that that people who suffer from migraine are incredibly sensitive to. Two other things. One is that um, a very understated and and unknown trigger for migraine is actually um, vertical blinds or horizontal blinds or any lines of any description. So like, you know, like Indian rugs with lines of different orientations and that will drive a migraine nuts. Hmm. Right. So if, if, if it's a weapon, honest goodness, this is a weapon. It's a torture device. It really, really is. So, and, and the problem is we are surrounded by lines in, in Western cultures. We really are. Um, and, you know, there was a fashion out a couple of years ago with, with like lots of really stripy tops and things like that. And and I can sit in a meeting with lots and lots of men who are wearing shirts with lines of, of, you know, they're either vertical or the horizontal, and they'll drive me nuts. Like really, I cannot look at people. I have loved lockdown because I can just turn off the camera on Zoom, (laughs) right? And I don't have to see them. It's wonderful. My, My migraine instance hit the floor. Why is that? That is because when you're a migrainer, your visual cortex, the area at the back of your brain, that um, is very sensitive to to light. So it's, it's the bit where you actually um, turn light into signals that allow us to understand the world in terms of what it is that we can see. It's our visual areas. As a migrainer, it's incredibly sensitive, hmm. really sensitive. And of course, we know that migraine is started by an overactivity in a part of the brain towards the back of the brain, usually the visual cortex. Well, of course, if you're particularly sensitive to lines, you walk into a room with lots and lots of blinds or lines or people with stripy shirts, and it's awful, that can actually trigger off a migraine attack. So knowing that helps you to steer clear of that kind of thing.
0: Yes, and, uh, and then, some. Somebody who's suffering from migraines would have a real problem in like a 1940s prison where all the uniforms were striped. Oh my goodness!
1: Striped. Absolutely, yes. And you see, people don't realize that this is a trigger. Now, triggers don't tend to happen in isolation. You know, we have got a threshold, and over that, you know, you're you're on a you're on a pathway to migraine. But under that, there are things that you can control, and mm-hmm. it may just be that that knocks you over the edge, that kind of thing. But another thing that was really interesting. Um, that that I discovered was that people who suffer from migraines have a much, much bigger concentration of bacteria in their mouths that break nitrates down into Mm. nitrites, right? Why is that important? Well, nitric oxide is really important in your body as a vasodilator it really helps when you're, when you're, when your muscles are in cramp with bad posture it's released to cause vasodilation bring more blood to the area and um, your muscles are in cramp because they're they're working anaerobically they don't have enough oxygen so you want to bring more more blood to that area it's that vasodilation that then we we detect a stress OK, and everything is a vicious circle. So we need it. We really do need it. But too much of us. Well, that's going to cause a problem. Right now. Anybody who suffers from angina will probably have been given uh, a glycerol trinitrate spray, GTN. You spray it under your tongue and it is a nitrate that is then broken down by the bacteria in your mouth into nitrite. Nitric oxide, right, causes vasodilation in the blood vessels around the heart, and that then relieves the angina attack. But it can also cause vasodilation in your brain, which is why some some people cause ha, get headaches out of use of the GTN spray. Mm. But it can also trigger migraines. But so can eating nitrates now nitrates are in bacon they're in any kind of cured meats they're in some leafy vegetables to a degree but definitely in meats that have been very um, preserved it's powerful preservative and antibiotic so that's why we use a lot of it in in um, salted and cured meats and fish so if you start your day with the bacon sandwich and you've got many more of these bacteria that break the nitrates into nitrites, that means you're actually overdosing on the nitrate nitrites, um, as opposed to your counterparts who may not have as many bacteria that bust them into nitrites. So, what do you do about that? Well, you know, just swigging your mouth out with with some mouthwash before you eat your bacon sandwich would work, or don't eat the bacon sandwich. You know, so th- sometimes there's things that you can break it all down and say right. Okay. There are things behaviorally that I can do. Let's try those before I go down the drug route.
0: That's interesting about bacteria in the mouth. That makes me wonder just how in play the gut microbiome is with <gasps> something like migraines.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it has a huge, huge effect. And we know this both both anecdotally, but also phenomenologically and also scientifically, mm. we're only really just scratching the surface really. We're Mm -hmm. only scratching the surface. And the one thing that we keep forgetting is that when we talk about hormones, we think about, you know, the big players. So we think about an area called the hypothalamus that pretty much that's Hormone central in your body. I love it, it's a brilliant area of the brain. I'm not too proud to admit that it's my favorite part of the brain. (laughs) There's that. But then you have all of the different um, glands that it acts on, things like your thyroid gland, you've got kidneys, you've got your pancreas, all of these things. But what we always forget about is that our stomach and our gut are huge producers of various hormones that again are vasoactive and psychoactive as well. And we just don't give them the credence that they allow. And this is what's fascinating about physiology and about how it affects our brain and our behavior and how linked it is and how we can't actually think about one aspect of it without thinking about all of it. And we're certainly not going to be able to help people by looking at it from just one angle. We've got to look at all of it.
0: You accurately and humorously point out that we as humans are walking bags of water, sixty percent water for that matter. Just how big a deal is dehydration with a lot of headaches?
1: Huge deal. Absolutely huge deal. I had I had a dehydration headache myself today, and I should know better, right? You know. So <laughs> so it's it is a big deal. And the reason why it's a big deal is because it's not just something that happens instantly okay so it's not like you know you you don't have a glass of water and all of a sudden you have a dehydration headache it's actually indicative of behaviors that that may have lasted days so you know you have you've been doing things that actually maybe you've been doing because you wanted to reduce your stress right so what do we do when we're stressed well we say oh, i know what i'll do i'll have a takeaway you know i'll have some takeout food i'll i'll i'll, I'll have maybe a a glass or ten of wine, I'll have a few beers, you know, that that kind of thing. And actually what's happening there is we're we're actually carrying out behaviors that we think are going to help our stress, but actually are going to give us a headache. So it's it's often coincidence with stress headache because because it's a behavior um that we we often carry out to reduce stress, but end up with a headache anyway. So what's going on? Well, we need water to excrete all of these um, uh, chemicals and and food that we eat and everything, it all gets broken down in our body and we need to excrete it and we need to excrete it safely. So we need to dilute it. So our kidneys need to take water and needs, needs to take water from our body um, in order to, to dilute these, these um, nasty, noxious chemicals that are floating around in our bodies. Um, It's worse if we've imbibed alcohol because, because we, definitely need to um, to dilute that before we can excrete that ethanol safely. So and it takes a lot more water to do that. So if we haven't been drinking things that actually will replenish water, coffee is not a good good thing to do here because coffee is actually a diuretic that will that will make us wee out the water instead of using it sensibly in order to to dilute these, these chemicals or ethanol or whatever else might be, might be floating around. So our body needs to take the water somewhere. And if we're not drinking as much water as we are excreting, then we get dehydrated. So what does that mean? Well, it means that actually we're taking water from our blood. We're taking water from our mucus. We started off talking about mucus. And if we're a little bit dehydrated, that mucus becomes more slurpy. It becomes more gloopy. It doesn't become as as it's not as runny as it usually is. So again, when we're suffering a sinus episode, we need to make sure to stay very well hydrated because it it'll be more comfortable. Our mucus will be more comfortable in the end. Hmm. But the the place in our in our bodies that actually is a repository of water is our brain. It's it's made mostly of water, really. And so we our kidneys take the water from there. Once it's taken water from everywhere else that it can, it takes it from there. And you can actually lose 20% of the volume of your brain this way, okay? And that means it shrinks. It's like it's like an oasis that you stick flowers into, you know? It shrinks as it loses its water. And it pulls on the, the membranous coverings of, of the brain, it's called the meninges. And that causes pain because you've got pain receptors embedded in the meninges. Funnily enough, you don't have any pain receptors in your brain itself, you can poke around in a brain, no problem. Nobody would feel anything, which is why many brain surgeries are done while the patient is awake, because they don't feel surgeons poking around in there. But it's important to know whether you're touching anything that would affect speech or would affect movement. It helps surgeons to stay away from important areas. And so, so yeah that's that's how the dehydration headache works and it does just feel like the inside of your your face and the inside of your head is just pulling doesn't it that dehydration headache that we get and again because of that then we get a stress response that's mounted to that and everything that happens at the same time and and you know and if you're hungover that's pretty much the basis of the hangover headache but you can also get anxiety which is a term that was coined by David Nutt. And, and it really is around the fact that alcohol is it, it's a phenomenal substance in, in how it affects your brain. It relaxes you not just by increasing the inhibitory action of, of certain neurochemicals, but it also decreases the activity of excitatory neurochemical. Mm. So it, it's a double whammy right there. And, you know, as you're sleeping it off, you might wake up in the middle of the night, usually because you need to eat because you're trying to excrete the, the, the ethanol from your body, but also because um, you, you've got the makings of this dehydration headache. But once you do, you might feel incredibly negative. I I call it when the wine starts talking back <laughs> and you feel very, very negative because it's like the, um, the, the dial has, has spun, the pendulum has swung. So instead of being in a very almost relaxed, inhibited state, you, you get a little bit more excited than you ordinarily would. So the pendulum swings the other way and you feel quite anxious, but you still have that negativity side to it all. So you feel anxiously negative and it's called anxiety. And it's when the wine starts talking back.
0: (laughs) What a vicious cycle. It passes,
1: but not necessarily quickly.
0: What a vicious cycle that is, too. All right. Last question, Amanda. As far as the future of this field of study is concerned, what is an important question that you are currently racking your brain to try and figure out?
1: Mm, that's a really, really good question. There's there's lots of, of questions that, that I try to rack my brains or that rack my brains for me. I, I think that the, the main thing is to to try to understand things not in snapshots as we currently do, right? So we, we often say, okay, so this is great medication, take that for the rest of your life. But what we forget about is that people's lives change. Their environments change, their stressors change, um, the thing that what they do changes. And that can all feed back to how it is the brain and their body are working together as well. And so that can then change how effective medication is or they may be over medicating. That that concerns me. That's a real concern that we don't take take that kind of um biopsychosocial drift that we all experience as we go through life into account and how it is that we we treat um not just headache but lots and lots of other other medical ailments. So, so yeah that that preoccupies me a little bit. Um, but really it's just about mainly it's it's about trying to break things down so that we can make it to the point where we understand various aspects of it and so that we're not just helping some of the people some of the time but we can actually help all of the people all of the time by going at it through an individual and personalized experiential point of view as opposed to just taking a condition and saying what can we do to fix that it's different for everybody we've got to understand that so that we can help everybody through it.
0: The personalization of medicine is, I think, going to be a huge, huge factor going forward. And I'm very thankful that you, amongst others, are on the right path in that regard. And you're working hard to help out in that regard as well. She is Amanda Ellison, a psychologist and neuroscientist at Durham University. Her book, Splitting the Inside Story on Headaches, is out now in paperback. Amanda, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this informative and very funny book.
1: Thanks so much, Trey.
0: Join me next time when I speak with journalist, science writer, and author Emily Willingham on The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.